Being alive in Elizabethan England seems like it would have been pretty harsh. That's obviously my modern take on things. Doing without antibiotics and indoor plumbing and HBO and things like, as a woman anyway, basic human rights would not be an easy thing to experience. I would certainly not last long. But for the average person born and raised in Tudor times, I can only imagine that things could get pretty frightening from time to time as well. Take illness, for example. A person could be healthy one day and quarantined with plague the next, only to be dead within a week. There was no understanding of bacteria or germ theory or the spread of illnesses. They thought that the putrid smell was what carried disease, which is how miasma theory became the prevailing opinion of the day. You didn't wash your hands to avoid getting sick, you just had to make sure the air around you wasn't filled with the stench of rotting organic matter and you'd be fine. Spoiler alert, that didn't really work. Such is the case with many aspects of human life for the people of Shakespeare's time. Your fortune could, and frequently did, turn on a dime with no rhyme or reason. It felt arbitrary and lawless, not subject to the same rules that governed their day-to-day -day existence. But that didn't mean it wasn't in someone's control. Thus, we get Lady Fortune and her wheel. Human emotions, or at least the seed of their power, were also similarly misunderstood. The powerful church, whether Catholic or otherwise, expected order in all things. When love struck outside of marriage, it bucked that system. When jealousies or envy caused people to act bizarrely, it bucked that system. When a period of grief lasted too long or not long enough, it bucked that system. The messiness of human emotion was a kind of spanner in the works of orderly human life. There had to be a way to explain it. For the Elizabethans, that explanation was found in the realm of the supernatural. Fairies bewitched and witches cajoled, ghosts could demand retribution, and visitations from beyond the veil happened in dreams, which could themselves be powerful portents that ought to be listened to. This wasn't a gimmick. These things were literally real. Witches could be your neighbors, and books were written by powerful men to help you spot them in their natural habitats. The position of the stars and planets in the sky were read like books to determine the best time to do everything from visit a friend in another town to invade a foreign country. In a time when bad smells were all it took to catch your death, there was a lot of motivation to err on the side of extreme caution. Shakespeare's works reflect that society back to us, sometimes whimsically and sometimes terrifyingly. The fairies of A Midsummer Night's Dream hold as much sway as the witches in Macbeth or the ghosts in Richard III. Their influence on the human characters in these plays is real. The characters themselves believe what they see and hear because the people in their audiences would have believed it too. These days we attempt explanations via psychology and not mythology. We have weighty tomes like the DSM-5 to prescribe meaning to what would have confused our ancestors. That's all well and good. These misunderstandings of the fundamental nature of things are to be somewhat expected. There is a general trend towards increased knowledge with the passage of time. Societies and their ideas progress as the years go on. Hippocrates and Galen believe that the bodies were made of humors, and we know better now. It certainly doesn't become us to sneer or look down our noses at the quaintness of the past, however. After all, we still send Cupid-shaped valentines on February 14th. The green-eyed monster has attacked us all in the most inopportune moments, and broken hearts are still just as anecdotally lethal as they've ever been. So we think it's worth looking at the supernatural as Shakespeare portrayed it, thinking about what the different kinds of supernatural meant to him and his audience, and looking for that meaning in our own appreciation of Shakespeare's collected works. So join us today for a discussion of ghosts, ghouls, and a god of the gaps with the Bix. Since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? 
speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. So I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And we are the Bix. Yes. And as I just explained, we're here to discuss the supernatural in Shakespeare's works. Yeah. And it's a big topic, uh, but not necessarily as big as you might think, Mm. um, based on your excellent introduction, Lindsay. Uh, As you explained it, you know, this was the the filler for a lack of knowledge in, Mm -hmm. in Elizabethan times. And so... You know, there there was a lot they didn't understand. Sure. Um, but the supernatural only shows up in in a in a handful of plays, yeah. really. Um, there's ones like Midsummer Night's Dream, which we just talked about last episode, um, which you know it's a huge driving force in it. Um, most of the other ones, it's kind of a, a peripheral, yeah, a fleeting glance. Yeah, maybe. yeah, a, a small player amidst yeah. the larger stage of an individual play. Nice metaphor. Thank you. Uh, and so we'll, we'll go through kind of uh, the major highlights and talk about, you know, the individual instances and how they kind of come together and, mm-hmm. and work to uh, function as you describe them as, you know, this this kind of fill in for um, either something that we would now ascribe to psychology or science or something else uh, takes on a different form in in Shakespeare's works. Yeah. And I think we kind of uh, isolated three broad categories of Mm -hmm. supernatural elements that appear in Shakespeare's plays. And there's probably some um, room for disagreement here, but this is just our kind of cursory take for a, let's call this a survey class. This will be like a (laughs) a supernatural survey class, a 100 level university course. Um, So there's, there's the broad category of ghosts which appear in, in, I think, five of Shakespeare's plays, four times as kind of negative, scary influences and once as as helpful influences, I guess. Um, Visions or predictions or dreams, which function in quite a few uh, plays in quite a few different ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, And finally, magic, which is far more commonly associated with Shakespeare's later plays. Yeah. Um, but does appear in, for example, Midsummer Night's Dream from like the middle portion of his career as well. So those three broad categories are kind of what we're going to use to structure our episode and, and, and our conversation going forward. And we're going to start off with ghosts because I think that's the one that most people, um, commonly associate with the supernatural. Mm -hmm. It's still what we call the supernatural today, ghosts, goblins, demons. I mean, we don't have any vampires or anything, but, but Shakespeare, no, not in Shakespeare, but these are, these are kind of traditional um supernatural elements i think that that are fairly easy to get into and again there's only five plays where ghosts appear hamlet macbeth richard the third julius caesar and cymbeline um so yeah i guess let's just briefly touch on how those ghosts interact and how they appear yeah so i mean the the most famous one probably is hamlet and it is you know hamlet's father hamlet kind of Senior. a driving force for the yeah, whole play yeah, really right? kickstarts the whole play literally starts it off um and that one's interesting because unlike essentially all the other instances uh hamlet's father's ghost is um viewed by multiple characters so yes. he, it is at least at the start yeah at, at the beginning and uh right up perhaps until you know hamlet goes a little crazy and right. starts stabbing through through uh curtains and what have you <laughs> um but he uh he appears to uh uh fort is it fortinbrough no not fortinbrough where am i going with this already uh what's his name the hamlet's best bud oh um 
to Horatio. Thank you, Lindsay. Yes. You are the best. Uh, so he appears to Horatio and the other guardsmen. Um, and, you know, he instantly calls forth and sets into motion the, the entire events of, of uh, the play. Um, but within Hamlet's story... Uh, shall we say he functions in in a way that's similar to the other ghosts in Shakespeare, which is as kind of a uh, psychological device. Mm-hmm. It's it's something there to remind uh, a the character, living. yeah, the living, uh, to either uh, please avenge me or you're going to get avenged or you're, the bad thing you've done is going yeah. to be avenged, uh, which is yes. what happens with uh, most of the other ghosts in yeah. this, in, in uh, the other tragedies and what have you. Um, it's Banquo in Macbeth. Yeah. It's Julius Caesar in Julius Caesar. And All it's, of Richard's victims. <laughs> yeah, the night everybody. Before the, the Battle Richard of killed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the one exception is uh, Cymbeline, where yes. uh, which I've I think I may have read briefly. Oh yeah, we read it in in university. Yeah, okay. I, I, I don't remember it very well. So well, there's the there there summer? are ghosts who appear to plead with uh, the ghosts of posthumous's um, posthumous Leonidas's ancestors plead with the god jupiter to kind of lighten up on the suffering uh, that their that their forebear i don't know that's not the word that posthumously Leonidas is experiencing <laughs> yeah. i don't know what the word is yeah, for that. Yeah, you've yeah. got ancestors and forebears, forebears and yeah, whatnot yeah, yeah. but yeah. whatever that word is <laughs> the current generation yes exactly suffering, yeah. so they want him to kind of lighten up so uh so the ghosts are kind of appealing they're interceding on behalf of a mortal living human being um rather than threatening or seeking help which is what hamlet's father does in the beginning when when he's seen by multiple characters it is to remind hamlet to first of all to tell hamlet that he was killed by his uncle Mm -hmm. um that that hamlet's father was killed by hamlet's uncle uh, that is and um <laughs> that was an awkward word I said it. uh and then yeah as you said in later on it kind of becomes unclear how much of what hamlet is seeing and experiencing is real and how much of it is in his own mind um which is an interesting topic that we'll discuss when we get to hamlet but that is how the how the ghosts function in all the other instances yeah. as kind of a, a guilty conscience or a yeah. stand-in for a guilty conscience. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Banquo's ghost with Macbeth is a, is a very obvious example. Same yeah. with uh, Julius Caesar's ghost to uh, Brutus's yeah. uh, appearance. You know, it's, it's there right before a downfall yeah. strikes them. And how they react to that says a lot about their yeah, character. So exactly. Hamlet at first reacts skeptically and then comes to... Uh, believe his father and then goes to the extreme and kills not just his own uncle but in the course of the, like the joke everybody. is everybody <laughs> dies at the end of hamlet right so uh, there are a lot of deaths that are ascribed to the actions that hamlet takes um in macbeth it's again every time that macbeth comes up against any of the forces of the supernatural that that appear and yeah. there are quite a few in macbeth um he he reacts somewhat dubiously, but eventually comes to fulfill the the role that has been prescribed to mm-hmm. him or laid out in front of him. And so it's part of his tragic hero status. It's his yeah. it's his Achilles heel almost that yeah. that he you know these self fulfilling prophecies, if you want to look at it that way, are 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 um, kind of set into motion mm-hmm. by the appearance of these supernatural beings. In Julius Caesar, Brutus is a very um, forthright character, and he's an honorable character who's doing things out of the goodness and, and love of the state and love of, of Rome. Yeah, um, He's doing bad things, but the ends for him justify the means. Yeah. 
And so his response to Caesar is is often portrayed as very um, noble. He's not afraid. Yeah. He's kind of like understanding almost and contrite in a way. Yeah. It depends on the production. But I think it's it's interesting sure. that he doesn't, unlike Macbeth, who kind of by the end is is afraid, especially in the scene with when he sees Banquo's ghost at the, the banquet. Um it's a sign of his madness yes. with Richard III. It's a sign of his discontent the yes. night before he goes off into the battle that is going to kill him. For for Brutus, there's almost uh, I don't know how to describe it. It's it's there's a nobility to him almost, and I don't mean yeah. that in like he's a nobleman, but but he's he's it's it, ennobled exactly. It's almost like he's making peace with yeah. the fact that Caesar is haunting him yeah. at the same time as standing by his choices all the other ones yeah. it's really kind of like the 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 past the bad past choices have come to bite him whereas yeah. brutus is like i understand i, I understand. did that yeah but, but i would I do it again yeah i wouldn't change what i've done yeah. because i still believe it was right yeah. even after all the exactly the crap you can that's be coming. mad you can haunt me yeah and and i'm sorry that we're meeting <laughs> under these circumstances but yeah he's a very kind of contrite uh yeah honorable yeah kind maybe of not contrite isn't the word but but there is there is a kind of honor and, and nobility to yeah. what he does so it it reveals more about the character themselves than the ghosts do like yes. the ghosts aren't really characters they're no. kind of Again, that's why it's easy for them to be read as as figments of the imagination yeah. of the, the character on stage. Well, and, and it's kind of a trope that we've inherited. I mean, you think of the next greatest Hamlet, The Lion King. Uh-huh. Uh, yes, you know, course. when Mufasa's uh, vision in appears clouds. in the clouds, yeah. it's the exact same kind of yeah. substance, right? It, it pushes Simba's journey towards reclaiming his rightful throne. Right. Um, and so it, it is kind of now a, a trope of this being like an aspect of, of uh, the character that is voiced in another yeah. Another body, and there's there's tons of stories that have done this. Uh, I think of Infinite Jest. There was a there's an extended ghost sequence mm. involving uh, two characters who have never met, and so you're not really sure if it's a ghost or if right. one of them's just high on pain medication. It's really interesting. So like th- this is just uh, it's now a common thing, and I I um, I didn't read too much on ghosts in Elizabethan right. uh, stories, but it seemed like that was already kind of the. Yeah, I think I think people did believe that there was a, a life after death, obviously, and there were customs and, and funerary rites that needed to be performed mm-hmm. and people would pass on. And, and I think if that was interrupted because a person was murdered um, unjustly, as if there's ever such thing as a just murder, this well, is now turning into a philosophical <laughs> podcast if we're not careful, but... Um, if they if they meet an untimely end that they feel is unfair, then they can't pass on, and that's something that that our culture has inherited and continues yeah. on through the Victorians and yeah. and right on up until when it was modern part day. of Catholic dogma it was. too. To, it you know, still th- is this They're, purgatory. Well, yeah, they got rid of purgatory up until a yeah, years, well, yeah. very very recently. But <laughs> even when you talk about things like exorcisms, that mm-hmm. the Catholic Church still um, kind of kind of condone corners yeah, the, the yeah. market it's, on right. Yeah. It's what they do. Yeah, and and anybody who does anything. Along those lines, you know, the the famous ghost hunters, the Warrens or whoever, they're always talking about somebody being stuck and they can't move past that. So whether or not you believe in ghosts as a a modern day skeptic part of our. Yeah. You know, like if they're whether you think they're real or not, there's still that trope in society, in our culture that um, ghosts represent some aspect of the dead that have not has not been able to 
Yeah, you can proceed. move past it. Yeah, 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 and that's that's actually across multiple. I think so. Cultures yeah. as well. It's a fairly consistent thing, and I, part of it's you know also that desire to hang on to the the spirit of the person that, sure. that's gone as well. It's not sure. just about their lack of ability to let go. It's the individual's ability to let go of that person as well. So, and I um, think the the idea that it also could represent an aspect of the the. Um, the person's mentality, their mental state, mm-hmm. is also part of our cultural landscape now. Um, when you look at at uh, stories from you know Victorian Gothic novels yeah. and stuff, where um, yeah. <laughs> you know whether it's it's the character that you think is the ghost, but it's actually just the wife in the attic, you know, in 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 uh, Jane Eyre, yeah. or um, you're reading a novel like The Turn of the Screw, where you're not really sure who the ghost is or, <laughs> yeah. or who the dead person is. Yeah. There's there's a, a hinge of of um, I guess I guess the 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 link to mental illness is is still very present. And when you talk about someone like Mary Todd Lincoln, you know, yeah, using yeah. the Ouija board until her dying day to contact her Things son, been, it's yeah. not it's not. Uh, it's sad, but in a in a way that is like uh, pitiful. Pitiful. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's not just sad because someone has died. It's almost like we pity the person who is Who's still holding on. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that also um, is that that's a pretty clear trend in our, and it's mm-hmm. still something that exists in our culture. So it's something that Shakespeare is playing with back yeah, in absolutely. this time as well. But it and hasn't how, really changed too much, no, really. I no, mean, and I think that's think one reason why these stories... I mean, when you look at the list, you know, yeah, four are, of the five <laughs> plays where ghosts are featured are... The big ones. The big ones, yeah. right? The ones that people study in high schools and are still put on regularly around the world in multiple mm-hmm. languages. It resonates with us. Yeah. Uh, so there's something there about um, the way that ghosts function in our society and in our psyche um, whether or not you believe they're real they represent something very key mm-hmm. and and that's i think the fact that these plays are still popular um and still widely read is a and testament to that and instantly understood because yeah. that that, yeah. that cultural weight is still there behind them that uh, you don't need to explain to someone well back in the elizabethan age people thought ghosts were real like yeah. everybody that's something that's stuck with us and, yeah. and doesn't require yeah. uh, any extra help for I must tell you friendly in your ear. Sell when you can. You are not for all markets. And just, Lindsay, because you, you uh, mentioned it and it was top of mind as soon as you said it, uh, the whole like, oh, who's the ghost? Six cents. I mean, that yes. is like the yes. ultimate. And just, you know, me, I love my 90s references. So, I mean, it is it is a great film for the exploration of, of why ghosts do they what they do. And yeah, uh, yeah it also feels a little a little little on the same yeah i think so yeah same yeah, wheel so. there yeah absolutely i see dead people to be or not to be so it carries <laughs> yeah, the same one-liners. cultural yeah. cachet right totally the second broad group that we want to talk about are are the the visions slash predictions slash uh dream premonitions i guess yeah. that people have in these places and there's quite quite a list starting yeah. uh, you know all the way back with the part uh, Henry the Sixth, Part Two, mm-hmm. Venus and Adonis, going all the way through to, um, you know, Caesar, Macbeth, Troilus and Cressida. You've yeah. got characters who prognosticate or attempt to read the future or have the the future visited upon them in some form or yes. another. And whether they act on it or not, it is 
it is usually a force that that certain characters on stage believe in and other characters poo-poo and kind of dismiss, yeah. uh, usually to their downfall. Yes. And uh, that seems to be the, the main through line with most of these. Yeah, so most of the uh, instances of predictions are, uh, uh, they come from some sort of soothsayer, yeah. some sort of prophet of some type who is then promptly ignored right. um, and sees the uh, prophecies come true. There's uh, Venus in Venus and Adonis who right. promises that Adonis will get killed by the boar and then, you know, he does. Uh, there's Cassandra, the original Cassandra, who uh, talks about the end of Troy uh, in Troy's Cresta and then boom, it happens. There's the Susarian Julius Caesar, beware the Ides of March. He doesn't beware him and he dies. Um, and then there's, there's kind of the... Uh, peripheral ones that are kind of related and one we've already talked about was uh richard the third the ghosts kind of tell him of his downfall and yeah you know hearken on him for the uh the death that's coming to him um there's joan of arc's kind of right. uh you know visions, visions of uh success in uh the wars against the english yeah um, almost joan of arc is almost a prophetess in herself yes in a weird yeah way. She, she's kind of a unique yeah. unique character but most of the most of the instances are of this kind of uh this profiteering profiteering <laughs> prof, prof, prophetic prophetic yeah, prof, actions profetition i don't know <laughs> we're making up words here <laughs> But uh, but the, the, that that is kind of the the typical approach, and that's probably how an Elizabethan would have expected it. You know, they would yeah. have thought of, um, you know, uh, especially in a lot of these plays, it's it's kind of in a uh, a pagan environment, right? It's you know, there's like Cassandra, yeah. is in ancient Rome, uh, Julius Caesar as well, um, Venus and Adonis, Venus and Adonis. I All guess these... I guess in in the plays where there's more direct like the history plays when the duchess of gloucester is directly interceding with well, someone that, that, that one's different because that's, that, it is that's an attempt yeah so that's almost like a mimicry of the ones that they build in the original in the more ancient plays right? yeah but it but it's it's um she's going against the grain of what would be expected in a christian society yes, and that's exactly. what leads to her downfall yeah um similar with joan of arc which is ironic because she was the voice of god but she was a, a heathen for you know being able to talk to god which is yeah just there there are all kinds of other problems that come up in these plays a lot of the the women who prognosticate calpurnia cassandra mm -hmm. they're all kind of spurned for their abilities or um their belief in these things mm -hmm. and it's always the powerful men who are the ones that say i'm not i'm not going to believe it which there's a kind of dramatic irony in that as well because i think any normal Elizabethan would consult their natal chart or or the astrology chart if they were going to make a big business deal. And if the if the stars said not to do it, they wouldn't do it. So yeah. when they see Julius Caesar, Ignoring. you know, ignore it or <laughs> goaded into going to the Senate when yeah, he agrees yeah. not to go and yeah. they, they breathe a sigh of relief, but then he actually goes yeah. or whatever the case may be, they would they would know that that was going to lead to bad news. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, that, and that's the instance in almost every one of these cases. The other, the other ones, like you mentioned, Henry the the sixth. There's yeah. um, Joan of Arc, and then the Duchess of Gloucester. And those ones are interesting because they are um, modern attempts to interpret a kind of uh, foretelling of events. Right. Um, and it's Mary Todd Lincoln in the 
Again, with yeah. the Ouija board. Yes. Yeah, exactly. It's it's this kind of like, well, that was a mystical past that, that where people could do that, but they still believed in it enough that it would be a, a recognizable character interaction to like yeah. say, okay, Joan of Arc is now going to pray in front of the, the Virgin Mary. And if she, the Virgin Mary cries, then it's time to go to war. Right. And if uh, the Duchess gets good news in her uh, witch's circle, then, you know, she'll her husband will the become Duke king. will be great. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So... Um, it's kind of interesting because it's, it's at one, at one, in one avenue, you have, uh, the characters in the plays participating in, under the commonly understood rules of soothsaying. Yeah. Uh, the Julius Caesar's or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. And then in the other one, you have, uh, more modern day characters trying to emulate those kind of practices. Yeah, right. So it's, it's interesting that both could be seen as, as understandable to an Elizabethan yeah. audience. Right. Yeah. Um, and then there's the interesting exception to the whole situation, right. which is Macbeth. Right. Yeah. Um, and that one's really interesting to me because uh, it is it, well, it can be at least viewed as being uh, the inversion of of your typical Susain because when Macbeth comes across the witches and they give him the first set of uh, prophecies about how he'll be thane of Cawdor and then he'll eventually become king. Yeah. Um, uh, and then. When he hears that, he actually sets in motion the events that will eventually lead to him becoming king. So it's actually almost unwittingly too. Right? Yeah, exactly. Like he's not yeah. really seeking it out. It, other people around him, like yeah, his wife, especially, him. are pushing yes, him towards yes, these things. But exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So and then uh, so it, it's an interesting uh, change of pace on that because if the witches had not come across him, would he still have proceeded down that right. path? Or was Lady Macbeth pushing him on saying, no, no, listen to the witches. Remember the witches told you, you should be, you could become King. Right. We should go do this. Is that what eventually led to his downfall? Um, or is it, it just him hearing the witches yes. themselves? Yeah. That sets it. Yeah, into exactly. Is that all it takes? Yeah. So it, that old, that old nut of, you know, you read your horoscope, you know, and then you you set into motion the events that will have you Fulfilling have a good day your, or a bad day, yeah, which yeah. is why I always read my horoscope when I'm going to bed from the previous day. Yeah, yeah. And I match it up. See, how, no, I don't do that, but maybe once in a while. But but no, you're, you're absolutely right. It's it's like a it's it's the unique outlier in this, and that um, you can have that debate about whether or not it's a self fulfilling prophecy or not, um, which I guess is kind of. Uh, it shows up in Hamlet as well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a thing that happens in the later plays, I think, that that yeah. you start to complicate these things a little bit. Instead yeah. of it just being um, prognostication as a, as a plot point or as a, a thing to move the story forward um, or illuminate something about, you know, a character, a secondary character's motivation, yeah. here it actually acts as a maybe the entirety of the plot yes. right or or the central hinge on which the entire plot turns yeah. Yeah. and that is is a a much more sophisticated take on on prophecy i think yeah still supernatural though absolutely um, and and like the fact that it's the characters that do this prophesying are are the ones that are uh, you know, generally not considered normal. Right. They're 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 outside. They're super normal. Right. They're, they're supernatural, as it were. Yes. Uh, is kind of indicative of how the audience would have would have viewed any sort of uh, prophecy prophecy 
activity like right. this, right? right. Um, and closely related to that is is the idea of uh, dreams being the source yeah. of of these prophecies, especially like Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. You know, the vision could have been in a dream or something like yeah. that. Um, there's, well, there's Lady Macbeth with her vision of the dagger. Yeah. Uh, oh, absolutely. Which is, I forgot you know, about that one. Yeah, which is like not so much related to the prophecy, but it is, you know, it's it's similar to the ghost. It's the mm-hmm. ghost of the dagger that's killed the uh, the king. Uh, so th- there's this there's this other element of uh, the dream world kind of interconnecting with yeah. with the the living uh, with the living. the mortal world thank the you. waking the world. waking world is the what I was looking world. for there thank you, you Lindsay yeah uh, and then uh, and of course there's no play better than that uh, than Midsummer Night's Dream obviously which we right. just discussed yeah and I think the other one that um, that I have in my notes here is Romeo and Juliet with the uh, yeah. the reference the Queen Mab reference which is um, uh, more closely related to the kind of fairy world of Midsummer, these two plays written back to back or or very closely to one another. Um, Queen Mab being the bringer of of dreams and visions for the the people in the play, and Mercutio fa- famously um, chastising Romeo for mm-hmm. his um, feelings towards Rosalind on the night of the Capulet's ball. Um, it's one of the more famous quotes and passages from from Romeo and Juliet. Same with um, the the vision that Juliet has of of Romeo's death yes. when he descends from her balcony window. Yeah, I always and forget about that one. Yeah, yeah. she she envisions She's a little that, yeah, yeah that she sees him laid low in in the tomb, and that this is somehow she doesn't tell anybody. She just says it to herself. But yeah. but the fact that she sees that is. Um, for us who know how the story is going to end, again, it's a little bit of that dramatic irony that mm-hmm. we know that the story is going to end tragically, but um, but she doesn't. And, and we're kind of wondering how she doesn't pick up on it. Yeah. Why doesn't she listen to it? Yes. Um, and she's one of the few instances that I can recall where it's a female character ignoring the the that kind yeah. of intuition almost well exactly and that's and that's kind of how this has kind of been pushed down I was mm-hmm. going to say like connecting it to our modern day lens it's it's really more of it would be now viewed as either you could do it two ways either it would be some sort of intuitive yeah sense of dread or something like yeah. that that would be like oh we shouldn't go down that path yeah. and that's that's the the uh warning that yeah. the audience then receives or the other thing would be some sort of time travel situation sure. or something where you have someone from the future coming in and saying well you can't do this or else bad things will happen right and then of course we see them happen because we count don't... all the ballots in florida 2000 <laughs> i was thinking more along the lines of dark little... where like yes. you know well, yes. someone okay. coming from the future is what causes them to oh, create okay. the time I machine in the saying. past yes, yes, yes. you know it's just kind yes. of like a giant loop kind the of loop. thing yeah but uh yeah so i mean like there's there's this this is still again another storytelling element although the very you know like having an oracle at delphi tell you what's coming isn't something that we would accept as a storytelling device the way it would have made yeah i think or at least not in a story that's set in a modern yeah setting it would be weird it is weird whenever we see a fortune teller on screen we don't treat them the same way that we might have treated them if we were 
yeah. in the Elizabethan like, or Tudor no, but age. There's there's very few people very few people in a story written today would literally go to a Ouija board for an actual answer yes. to where is my ghost if or they where do, do they plant their jewels. We're like that person is is Needs some help. yeah <laughs> they're not the most sensible person yes. in the in the cast. So it's it's really again yeah. it would reveal the character, but it wouldn't be used as a as a real plot point no. the way it is in uh, the Duchess for in Henry the Sixth, for instance. Yeah. Some are born great. Some achieve greatness. And some have greatness thrust upon them. There's also a bit of a connection, I guess, between people who have visions and um, mental illness or madness, yeah. I guess. If you if you want to look at it. What um, we talked about with Joan of Arc in Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or Lady Macbeth, or, um, Hamlet. These yeah. are people who, you know, are questionably sane mm-hmm. at various points in the play. And when they receive some of their their more um, famous or powerful visions. Um, they're not of entirely sound mind. Yeah. Richard III, the night before the Battle of Bosworth Field, is Similar, definitely yeah. not in his best, at his best. Nope. Um, so it, it does make that, I guess it makes it a little bit easier to read um, the ghosts and any visions as being byproducts of not being of sound mind and body Mm -hmm. and so it's it's not entirely fair i think maybe there's there there's definitely um some problematic aspects to linking prophecy and mental illness i don't think that's something that a modern audience is necessarily gonna um be okay with but uh i think in these plays it's just a convenient excuse almost yeah is that the right word i yeah i would i would i would agree with that um and again it is something that's kind of carried on down the line like if you know throughout um again we're going back to uh jane Eyre, for instance Mm -hmm. you know when she discovers the woman in the attic the woman in the attic is mad with visions you know Mm -hmm. it's it's these these are kind of uh tropes that have also carried on down the line right um and it's you know, it's probably not done a lot to help, you know, stigmas yeah. around mental health and so forth. Yeah. But it is kind of, it's a convenient storytelling uh, device to say, like, you you knew this person. They were okay the first time you met them. Now the second time you've seen them, they're saying crazy things and they're yeah. seeing ghosts and, and hearing vision or hearing visions. Uh, you know, this is, this is a sign that you should not uh, trust this character anymore. And maybe that's not something that, it, that an Elizabethan... Elizabethan audience would have necessarily seen because they probably would have taken the prophecies at more face value. This is definitely a more modern interpretation Mm -hmm. to call Hamlet mad or to call Lady Macbeth mad. I think an Elizabethan audience, possibly even Shakespeare himself, would have just done this. Lady Macbeth literally saw the knife in yeah. a vision and that was a, a sign of, of doom. Yeah. It was not yeah, yes, it was, not, it was yeah. not just her guilty conscience that yeah. was causing her to think she saw this, yeah. right? Which is I think a much more modern take on it. Yeah. If you prick us, do we not bleed? Um, the final category is straight up magic. So yeah. when you have a character who can literally command the elements of, of our world yeah. in a way or- do things yes. that are supernatural exactly. uh, at their fingertips, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So magicians, literal magicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have the fairies and, and fairy folk in uh, Midsummer Night's Dream who yep. questionably use magic. I think yeah, we've got we you know, Oberon turning um, bottom into an ass. 
It's Puck which, who does it, but yes. Or Puck yeah, who yeah. turns him into an ass. But it's... Um, that's kind of it. For, that's it for real magic. For I direct mean, magic, it's, yeah. There's, there's manipulation of natural elements that I guess are a kind of magic. If you can pick a flower and have the dew from inside it make someone fall in love with someone else... You know, there, there. It's, it's not much of a leap to say that that's magic. Yeah, it might also just be an extension of herbology or yeah, exactly. aromatherapy yeah. or whatever <laughs> you might want to call it today. Some yes. holistic treatment. Yeah, you know, and so it's not. It's not necessarily completely clear that that's magic but mm-hmm. you could say that it's magic i no. think these are definitely characters who have some kind of control over the natural world um to the point that you know oberon and titania are mad at each other and that's affecting the crops and the seasons and it's stormy and yeah. and there's no sun even though it's midsummer and so you know when you have a bad a bad season you could blame it on the fairy folk because you you pissed them off right yeah or they're mad about something else or they're mad about something else entirely and, and, and this is just you have to just take your lunch, right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that again is something that an Elizabethan audience would have definitely understood. Mm-hmm. Um, the the other famous example is the Tempest. Yes, uh, you know you have um, Prospero. Prospero <laughs> yes, who you know is straight up a magician. Yeah, uh, he's basically fashioned this island, made it into his own, uh, using magic in order to provide for him and his daughter um, up to this point. And mm-hmm. you know he's used it to tame Caliban, and he has uh, Ariel the Sprite, who is also yeah. a, magi- a magical creature, yeah. um, capable of casting spells and and what have you. Um, and this is this is like probably the most uh, straight up fantastical oh, yeah. uh, use of magic because this it's is in everything. This bibbidi booing this shit all over the stage. <laughs> That's it's right. literal magic. This is yeah. straight up witchcraft. Yeah. Um, but it was totally like played straight. This was... Yeah. And, and it's actually one of the most poignant plays for a lot of people who view this as Shakespeare's swan song. It's mm-hmm. like Shakespeare... A magician in and of himself who can conjure worlds with his pen, right? Mm-hmm. Like whole worlds with with his inkhorn. Yeah. I, I mean, it's kind of you know him signing off and and putting words in Prospero's mouth that that allow him to exit gracefully from the world of the theater. It's it's kind of kind of cool when you think about it, it in that cool. way. But it is a very fantastical, magical play. Yeah. Um, and. And this one again, it's well, in both uh, *Midsummer Night's Dream* and *The Tempest*, yeah. uh, again, don't don't require any sort of updating to be understood right. by no. by I'd say like a Western audience who's used to like who's you know seen like *The Lord of the Rings* or *Red sure. the Hobbit* or something like yeah. that, where there's magic and you know we've inherited it's an, accepted an entire fact of certain you yeah. know fantastical realms, exactly, Game of Thrones, yeah. yeah, whatever. Yeah, we've yeah. we've just inherited this uh, willingness to accept that when yeah. you're in a fantasy world, these this, things can happen, yeah. and there's there might be rules, there might not be rules. It doesn't really matter yeah. because once you've crossed into that fantasy threshold, you're 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 willing to play fast and loose with the rules. And so, again, it, it's kind of interesting that in the Tempest, at least. Um, it really allows you to focus on the character of of Prospero, especially, yeah. um, and his his interactions with the other characters. Yeah, and it's it's done in a way that that illuminates um, human the human yeah, condition well, in, yeah, a, in a in way, him, or, yeah. or yeah, and in his daughter especially, and, yeah. and I think the relationship between Miranda and Prospero is. Um, central to the story itself yes it is that that is is the story story. so it's not a play that that talks about magic in a way that um that others it in in a sense it's part of the world that you exist in that these Mm -hmm. characters exist in it's just something else that they have in their toolbox to use to fashion the world that they want very similar to midsummer it's just 
what what that magic does to the people in the play is what is important. It's yeah. not the magic itself. It's yeah. just a, a another tool in the toolbox, yeah. I guess. Um, the Winter's Tale is is the third one. I think the last one that we want to talk about, just because it is kind of strange. In yeah, that it's, it's not clear off. if it's magic. Well, and it's and that's what's really interesting about mm-hmm. it. So it's just at the very end of the play. There's yeah. the statue of Hermione, Hermione, the wife yeah. who was, uh, you know essentially died after childbirth, I think. Yes, um, after being condemned by her husband. Yes, and left in prison and stuff yeah. like this. Um, and then there's the 16-year gap, and then her, her daughter's all grown up. And yeah. there's this whole shift in, in tone and everything in the winter sale. I really can't wait to talk about this one with you, Lynn. Um But at the very end, the, the, uh, the house sorcerer, or house sorceress, I should say, um, has said, oh, yes, and I have a statue made of... Uh, was it Hippolyta? Hermione? Sorry. Hermione. Yeah. Hermione. Uh, and I've, but I haven't done it the way she looked when she died 16 years ago. I've made it the way she would look now if she'd aged yes. 16 years. Yeah. And at the very end, the statue comes to life. Yeah. And there's no explanation given. The play just kind of ends abruptly at that one with a reconciliation between right. her and her husband and um, daughter and the daughter and uh, her new lover, which is the husband's son or someone Florizel, else's son. Yeah, the, I don't. The son of the of the other duke or something. Yeah, out in the forest they met. <laughs> they and met, and yeah. So yeah, the Winter's Tale is a problem play for this, probably for this reason. <laughs> Alone is that, at least. Yeah. I mean, you've got the first, maybe the first half of the play is set up like a traditional tragedy and the second half of the play is set up like Midsummer Night's Dream it's just body comedy and there's hilarity and there's gonna be a wedding at the end yeah Yeah. like you it's it's doesn't fit any one trope in any way and so it it makes sense that you have Paulina um like possibly being a magician sorceress who can conjure Hermione back to life after a 16 year spell but it also makes sense that Paulina just you know, faked Hermione's death and has been hiding her until this moment could happen. Yeah, which is possible because the death happens off stage and and she's the only one who recounts it to the audience. So there's a bit of plausible deniability there. You could go either way. I think the fact that um, the... um, Leontes and Hermione's son also dies at the same time and is not brought back to life. So it's not like this is a total happy ending. If magic was real, maybe their son would be back as well. Um, So I think that, I think, maybe leads people to go the other way, that this is just Paulina being sneaky because she is kind of a a vindictive character. I could see her doing this. Yes, yes. But... It's fun to have a, you know, the version that we watched last summer had the actress playing Hermione standing on the stage for most of that final scene perfectly still as a statue. And so the gasps in the audience when she comes back to life are kind of a stage magic in and of itself, which is which is interesting (laughs) that that that's being used. So is it magic? Is it not magic? Does it really matter? I think the point is, is that this is um, the the play reconciles the families and that's what is important the, that's what's the, important yeah and so and across all of these well all of them there's only the three, the three that are really really about, strong yeah. um the 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 use of magic is something that the elizabethans would have accepted as as real so sure. um whereas we kind of turn that switch in our brain and says okay now this is a fancy story or fancy yes. realm there wouldn't have been that distinction especially in in the last one in uh the winter's tale where yeah. you know there's nothing magical right up until that last moment mm-hmm. so even if you believe it is uh a magical 
use of magic. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you know, it it's it's something that the audience would have been like, well, yeah, no, that makes sense because they that woman was obviously a, a witch of some yeah. sort. Um Whereas we, I think, would have more doubt and we would have pushed perhaps more for, no, no, she was just hiding her for these yeah. last 16 years or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. So um, it is interesting to think about what we take out of the play is is a little different mm-hmm. uh, in the use of magic. I think The Tempest is probably the only one where you can't you can't have no. the play without magic. No. Like there's no, there's no way to imagine that... Prospero is not actually a sorcerer. Like, yeah, he's, no. Yeah, because that's 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 the character. But that makes the Tempest maybe a. Um, I'm just gonna say it makes it a magical play, <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yes. I think it's just it's a very different ty- kind of play in yeah. that sense because yeah. because of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, magic for us, we can take it or leave it. I think for an Elizabethan audience, the the point is this stuff was was put out there because it was a central facet to the story, but it wasn't the whole story. It was just a tool that was being used to get the story where it needed to be. And it was something that they would have absolutely just accepted at face value Mm -hmm. um, because it was something that they believed existed in their real life. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickerings. So this episode's Ancient Bickering is going to be a little different. Um, We wanted to, instead of, you know, outright argue, we wanted to share some instances where magic may still have a role in our lives or you know there there's still that those gaps of things we don't understand yeah um and we wanted to share some of our oddities that we've experienced um just to show that you know there's still parts of uh shakespeare stories that um are unexplained yeah yeah exactly and so may hold sway in in a modern context exactly aiden would you like to go first uh sure i mine is it's not so much in this is this is just geeking out here uh Sometimes I swear to God, Lindsay, I have access to the Force from Star Wars, and I'm going to tell such you bullshit. <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? I am going to tell you what I'm talking about. Occasionally, there are times when I will know that say there's a bank of elevators, mm-hmm. and I say that one, and it opens right then. Huh? And it could be maybe it's just like my ears. You know, I'm subconsciously attuned to when it's approaching, and there's that there's a scraping sound or something, and I'm not even consciously aware of it, but I hear it and I go. That one. If that's happens. the case, then I'm going to be really offended at all the times when you deliberately ignore me or mishear <laughs> what I say. If you can hear the elevator. Okay, well, no, I'm saying I have the force, Lindsay. It's the force <laughs> telling right, me these things. Right. Or sometimes it's like I know exactly what someone is going to say in a, in a conversation. Um, but again, that's probably just because I know them fairly well. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, maybe it's just you're really good at reading people. Sure. But, you know, th- there's, there's, but th- sometimes I get that sense, you know, yeah. where it's like, um, I I have access to information that I shouldn't in some mm, way, shape, or form. Okay. And it feels like the only way, the closest analogy I've ever had is to the Force, you know, how they could just like send some things off. Right. And then go and do It's Jedi because stuff. you're a, you're an old millennial. You grew up with the Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. Oh, totally. And uh, yeah. it's just, it's your cultural touchstone. That's right. So, but. I mean, it's it's probably a bunch of one-off little explanations that exist out there in the mm-hmm. world for each individual instance. But for me, it's the Force, and I like it. So, yeah. uh, I'm going to stick with it. That's interesting. Lindsay, what's yours? Um, well, I think it's it's I have to I would be remiss if I didn't say that I don't believe in ghosts. I think yeah, that would be I know. Um, <laughs> you love but, your ghost shows. But and I do. <laughs> I I like the idea of ghosts mm. and I have had some spooky encounters yeah. with ghosts or things that I can't explain but that I'm sure there are natural explanations for. It's just I like 
telling stories and so I will play up the fact that there was a ghost in the basement of the school where I worked and and people like hearing that story so I tell it um but I do think there are some kind of similar to your force story Mm -hmm. like I have moments where like I know what song is going to be on the radio or what song is going to come up next on my my uh iTunes or whatever Spotify when I'm listening to a song I just yeah. know and yeah. I hear it before it's playing and I know yes. it's gonna play um which is what weird is I don't know what that is <laughs> that, it's like that's what I have it does feel like it like a precognition almost yeah. that you know something's gonna happen and I think the spookiest thing that's ever happened didn't happen to me but it happened to my father and and he and I kind of had this bonding moment when it when it happened because I've had similar feelings and nothing has ever come of it like it did with him but um he was supposed to be flying on september 11th mm-hmm. and he was in ontario somewhere in 2001 yes, yes yes for those of you who are <laughs> under the age of 20 um yeah so he was in ontario somewhere at some furniture conference my dad used to design office furniture and so he was at this this trade show and he was supposed to be flying home on 9-11 and he didn't want to go. He was like, I something bad is going to happen. I remember him talking to my mom or my grandma about it. I was like 15, 16 at the time. And I remember him saying, like, I don't feel right. I don't want to go. And he had had stories that had happened to him before where there were there were delays on a plane or there was mechanical failure and the plane was diverted and, and he hadn't wanted to go on that flight. He predicted his grandmother's death before it happened. So he had this premonition. He ended up not flying, obviously, that day and ended up taking a bus from Toronto or Ottawa or wherever he was back home to Edmonton. It took him like three days because of how many planes were stranded. But um, but I remember talking to him about that. And and then ever, ever since then, whenever I had a feeling that like I would have a dream or I'd be at work and I'd be like, you know, I just something's bothering me. I would call whoever that was. Like I had dreams about my mom, my dad, my grandparents. And I would call and just check in. Right. Because I always worried. And sometimes it was it was nothing. But every once in a while, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, I've got a lung infection or, you know, I didn't sleep well last night. And I feel like there was some kind of weird connection. (laughs) Like how I I don't know. I I don't know if, if it's supernatural or maybe like Aiden hearing the gears in the elevator I can just I can I could hear my my <laughs> grandfather's bronchial tubes rattling and I just called out of uh, you know that would be quite the feat Lindsay. it would be because yeah. he lives quite a quite a distance yeah, across town yeah, yeah. you know but uh anyway yeah that's that's my thing again you know none of this means that the supernatural exists I think everybody has some story of something they can't explain and there must be some explanation for it um well the as rational I, brain yeah, in me yes. tells says so but who knows? But I mean, the the idea that, you know, the Elizabethans, the Tudor um, crowd, mm-hmm. they believed in this. They listened to it. They thought it was important. Doesn't it's not good to like, you know, I, I said in my opening essay that, you know, the March of Progress, you know, that's not necessarily entirely true, as evidenced by our <laughs> yes, conversation exactly. right now. We live in a post-Enlightenment age, and we are still talking about precognition. And so, ghosts, yeah. <laughs> and ghosts. So, I mean, I think these are just, these are cultural um, tropes, mm-hmm. if that's a thing. A meme, almost, if in the... the uh, yeah, the modern parlance. The modern parlance. Mm-hmm. Well, the 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 uh, scholastic parlance, I think. <laughs> sure. This isn't this isn't internet <laughs> memes, but it's something that's passed on. It's 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 something that's copied from generation to generation, and and it started before Shakespeare. But Shakespeare's stuff has just kind of kept it at the forefront. Um, so that's that's my thought on on the supernatural. I don't know. I you, love it. You're good. I'm good. Good. 
Poor Yorick. I knew him, Horatio. A fellow of infinite jest, of most excellent fancy. So our next episode, we are diving into Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. Juliet. Head first. Uh, yes. Um, Much like young lovers into a yes. shallow pool. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Jeez. Um, not the most romantic play, but one of those plays that people think is quite romantic. Yeah. Um, um, which will lead into our next uh, special episode. Yes, which, which is, is all about Shakespeare and love. Shakespeare and, and sex. sex. Shakespeare, well, Shakespeare sh- the sex interconnections love between in love. Elizabethan England, yeah, I think, is, yeah, is it's kind of where we're headed yeah. with that one. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you'll join us for those episodes. And until then, thank you very much for being here today. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.